Well, good morning. You can be seated. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, and uh, how many of you would say you ate well over Thanksgiving? Anybody want to confess? I ate too well over Thanksgiving. Yes, that's good. Like uh, Jason said, well, officially, now that Thanksgiving has passed, we can kind of uh, turn our attention towards, towards Christmas, and Christmas always brings so many opportunities for preparation. You know, there are ways that we decorate, uh, preparing to get together with people that we don't get together with any other time of the year, but then there's also the heart preparation stuff, you know, and if you're like me, every Christmas you're thinking, you know, I want to be, I want to experience Christmas this year in a more meaningful way, maybe spiritually, relationally with the people around me. I want to engage on a deeper level. So uh, if that's you today, uh, I hope that, that you're ready to engage in this series because I think that's exactly what it's going to be. And for those of you who had uh, maybe higher levels of, what is it, trip, trip to tain from trip to fan, fan. I use this word often, can you tell? Trip to fan from your turkey. Uh, I'm going to wake you up here a little bit. All right, so we... Uh, we know that uh, in a crowd this sharp that everybody is aware of uh, the real center of Christmas, which is Santa Claus, right? No? No? Okay. Checking you. No, we all know it's all about the presents, correct? You guys are dying here this morning. All right. Christmas. We're celebrating the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus, a very intentional coming, not just uh, a nice story, not just uh, something that is, you know, that can form a manger scene in our home somewhere, but a very intentional coming of Christ for very purposeful reason for each one of us. And uh, in the Bible, one of the cool things that we have is we have four different accounts of the life of Jesus. We, we have four different ways. They're not all exactly the same. They're the story of the life of Jesus told through the eyes of four different men, so they're each uh, a little bit unique depending on the vantage point of the writer. But what's really interesting is that of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them talk about the birth of Christ. Only two of them mention uh, the Christmas story. As a matter of fact, uh, the other two, Mark and John, start with the story of John the Baptist, which was some 30 years after Jesus was born, but that's where those two gospels kind of begin to tell the story of Jesus. So when most people think about the story of Jesus' birth, they think about it from the Gospel of Luke. And I think that's probably because, and we read it from Luke, because Luke is a good storyteller. I mean, he paints a picture that's pretty vivid and, and uh, probably a lot of, uh, you know, we all heard it on Charlie ba- Brown recited. Uh, so we're used to hearing the Christmas story from, from Luke. Uh, but Luke you know, the, the short version is that Luke, um, the angel announces to Mary and, and her cousin the, uh, the coming of, of Jesus, and then to the shepherds in the field, and then there's this incredible angelic choir, and then there's this scene of this, this beautiful baby in a serene manger surrounded by a lovely little petting zoo there. It's just all perfect. All, all the animals are there. Everybody's giving glory, glory to God. So Luke's description, a descriptive way of sharing the Christmas story, is one that I think we're, we're drawn to. But the Gospel of Matthew is unique because he does tell the Christmas story, but he doesn't start with the story. He actually starts with a genealogy. He starts with a list of names from Abraham to David, then to Jesus. And and to be honest, it doesn't really seem like the greatest way to tell a story. It doesn't seem like a very good way to engage your listeners. And when you think about telling a story, you want something that's going to grab people right off, you know, right from the beginning. So a list of names that maybe some of your listeners wouldn't even know who these people are, 
why, why would you choose to begin that way? It seems a little unusual. Eventually, Matthew gets to the Christmas story, but he starts like this. And I'll just read the first couple of verses. And they're in your uh, notes today if you want to follow along or they'll be up on the screen. But the first couple of verses of Matthew go like this. This is the, now this is a story. Matthew's telling the story of the life of Christ. He's beginning with the Christmas story, but this is how he chooses to start. So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and then he goes on and on and on, and we'll, we'll read a little further in just a few moments. But the names that I just read are probably the ones that you uh, would be the most familiar with, and then we get into a whole bunch of names that you probably can't even pronounce, and I'll try, but I'll give it my best shot. But this is the interesting part. You, you don't get really excited about hearing the beginning of that story. You probably get excited to flip to the next chapter and, and move beyond the list of names. So why does Matthew start with a genealogy? Well, this is one reason why. Matthew is writing to primarily a Jewish audience. So in, in writing to this audience, he, all of them would have been asking, is Jesus related to David? Because hundreds of years earlier, there had been a prophecy saying that the Messiah would come through David's lineage through David's descendants. And Matthew is making the case that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. So this is a very practical thing that Matthew is doing with a primarily Jewish audience. What he's doing is he's answering this question first. And that part makes sense. Uh, he's saying if Jesus is related to David, then he has a shot at being the, the prophesied Messiah. He wants, wants to clear that up, the Christ. But here's where it gets even more unusual. He does something very unusual from there. In a male-dominated culture, and more than even just a male-dominated culture, when you would have been uh, referring to a genealogy or bloodline, it would have been distinctly from men. Like, it would have been that, like, that, for instance, that proving that Jesus comes from David, we would want to see the men listed right down there. This was tradition. This is what had always been done that shows from Father Abraham to Father David down to Jesus, that in the male line that there was direct, direct descent. Um, and what makes this unusual is that Matthew throws in a handful of women, uh, four women, to be exact, in the genealogy. And not only does he mention women, but he also mentions other people that don't help Jesus look very good. Like, if you're trying to make a case that Jesus could be the Messiah, he's throwing in some pretty shady characters in there. And then he mentions people that seemingly would make it harder to believe that Jesus actually was the Messiah. Now, I want you to understand something, because this was important for me to learn. It's important to understand that in ancient history, they would hire historians to write history. And typically, a famous leader would hire a writer or a historian to basically tell the story of their life, a famous leader like a military leader or maybe a king or an emperor. And generally speaking, they were hired to write history that would make them look really good. <laughs> like you didn't hire somebody to write a history about you and say, hey, make me look like a chump, okay? I want to look like a total bonehead when you're done with all of this. Like you never did that. You hired someone and you said, highlight the great parts of my life and my story. So you can imagine if the writer who was hired turned in something that was less than complimentary, he was going to get some big edits back. <laughs> uh, he was going to send it back and say, you either lost your job or uh, that's, that's not acceptable. So consequently, there are gaps in history, especially in ancient history, because most of the historians were hired to write. For example, they make a big deal, these famous people uh, and the people who would write for them would make a big deal over their military victories, but they'd skip over 
or downplay their military defeats. So it was almost like they didn't happen. You really weren't aware of them because they wouldn't be written. They would make a big deal over their sons who were great warriors who followed them and, and did amazing things. But they would skip over or not mention any, any family members who didn't turn out so well or who didn't do anything that was considered noteworthy. So it was almost like those family members never existed. We don't, they're never written down. We don't know anything about them. So people who wrote histories wrote to make someone look as good as they possibly could. And then we come to this ancient document that Matthew wrote, the, the book of Matthew, that begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew seems to go out of his way to make us question some of the very people who Jesus would have descended from. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. In fact, he emphasizes people that he didn't need to mention at all, like the four women that we talked about, and two of them he really shouldn't have mentioned, which we'll, we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, but three of the four women aren't even Jewish, which means that Jesus didn't even come from a pure bloodline. So putting all this together, here's Matthew, and he's trying to say, so, so this story that I'm about to tell you is about the Messiah, but he comes from a mixed, questionable background with a lot of shady characters. And it makes you wonder, Matthew, this doesn't really help your case. Why, why are you writing these things? And I want to start by continuing to read in, in Matthew 1.3. It says, Matthew wrote, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Would you circle Tamar? Tamar is the first woman that Matthew introduced. introduces. He introduces Tamar. She'll be the focus of next week's message. So you're going to want to come back for this, but you might want to check the kids in the kids' ministry because Tamar's story is an out there story that includes pieces we probably won't even read aloud in church next week. Now, some of you are going to your Bible to mark this down so you can find it and read it this week. There'll be more scripture reading this week in between services than, than ever before. But uh, this is a dicey story. I mean, and it's not just a few details. I mean, this goes on and on and on. It's a dicey story. And there's some verses in there that you're just going to have to read on your own. We're probably not going to read them in church for the sake of the kids, you know, for the sake of the kids. But there was no need for Matthew to mention Tamar. It's like, Matthew, hey, just stick with the guys, stick with the storyline. But Matthew pauses and he throws in this woman, Tamar, and everyone who knew Jewish history knew who Tamar was. Every Jew who read her name in this genealogy would not have been impressed. It would not have, I mean, eyebrows would have gone up when they saw that Matthew included this. So I want to read on in Matthew 1, verses 4 and 5, actually continuing in verse 3. It says, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab. I worked on that this week, Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. And I did check this. It is not pronounced salmon. It is pronounced salmon. So all of you out there who are laughing, saying, he said salmon and it's salmon. It's not. It's salmon. All right. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Rahab. Would you circle Rahab? Rahab is the next woman that Matthew introduces. Ooh, he throws in another woman, Rahab. And Rahab had a pretty scandalous profession. In Scripture, she was always identified by it. She was known as Rahab the prostitute, right? It was kind of her nickname. It's like her last name, Rahab the prostitute. That was how she was always identified. So someday when you get to heaven and you meet Rahab, you're going to say, oh yeah, Rahab, you're the... You're the lady in the Old Testament. You're going to have to come up with something else because that's all, all that we know her by. And again, there's just no reason to bring this up. There's absolutely no reason for Matthew to put this in the lineage of Christ. 
So I want to read on in Matthew 1, the second part of verse 5. It says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Would you circle Ruth? Now, Ruth, that's a good story. That's a great story, but Ruth wasn't even Jewish. It's a great story, but Ruth was from Moab. And if you read back in the Old Testament and you read about the Moabites, you're like, why is he putting Ruth in this story? That, that, she's not of, of, of Jewish descent. So Ruth getting in the story is odd. So Matthew, you're trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus comes from a divine lineage, that he comes from Abraham, from David, and you're trying to connect Jesus to David. So why all of these off-ramps? Why, why would you put all of these distractions in Scripture? You read on in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, the second part of the verse. Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and here's where it gets really, really crazy. And Jesse, the father of King David. Okay, so Matthew gets us to King David, and that's part of the goal, right? We got to King David. We showed how, how he was connected to King David. And we, we could have just stopped there, but no, Matthew blazes on, and he's... He's on a roll here, so here he goes. David, the father of Solomon, and look at the way he writes this next part. You can underline it. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Would you underline that? Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You might not understand this yet, but Matthew is creating an incredible amount of drama here. This is like a bunch of middle school girls in the way he wrote this right here. All right, Solomon who had been Uriah's wife. He won't even say the name, but everybody knew it. Who was Solomon's mother? David's son, Solomon. Who was his mother? Does anybody know? Bathsheba. All right. You don't even have to be a church person to know about David and Bathsheba. We've all seen the Bible movies, right? When I was in Sunday school, they couldn't even make flannel graph for this story. It was so R-rated. It was just bad all the way around. David and Bathsheba. And instead of even mentioning her name, you know, Matthew just slides in there whose mother was. He couldn't even say whose mother was Bathsheba. He says, whose mother was another man's wife. Ooh. This is what he's thinking. This is what he's putting in there. I want you to understand the nature of this. Matthew records the worst moment of King David's life in the lineage of Jesus. I want you to understand all of the things that we celebrate about David, all of the things that the Jewish people would have been so proud of in King David. He defeated the giant, which really propelled their faith to, to victory and many conquests after that. Even as a young boy, he defeated the giant. And then David, who later on was known as a man after God's own heart because of his love for God and his desire to worship him with his whole life. He was the only, only guys in scripture mentioned with that kind, of, that kind of side note or end note. He was a man after God's own heart. So much so that David wanted to go on and, and build the temple so that Jesus could, that God could always be honored in, in, in Jerusalem with his people. So many great things that we could mention about King David. But instead, Matthew decides to stick in the worst possible moment of David's life unnecessarily. He puts it in the genealogy. He says that he basically had an affair with one of his best friend's wives. And if you don't know the story, one of David's best friends is General Uriah. Um, David took interest in Uriah's wife. The Bible says he saw her bathing on another rooftop. He took interest in her. He couldn't let go of that desire, so much so that it led him to the place where he sent a note out to the battlefield and said, send Uriah to where the fighting is the most fierce so that he'll be killed. So David had his best friend killed so that he could take his best friend's wife for himself. That is the worst possible moment in, a man's, in, in recorded history for David. And this is what Matthew 
chooses to put in, into the genealogy. Now, this is a part of Jewish history that no one would want, want to have even talked about. They wanted to be proud of King David. They didn't want to think about his biggest flaw. But Matthew decides to highlight these things. It's almost like he's trying to twist the knife in a little bit on the bad parts of Jewish history. And he's doing all this in the preface to telling the story of Jesus, in the preface to the Christmas story. So here's the big question. Why? Why does Matthew insert all of these distractions into the genealogy of Jesus? Why not just stick with the people in the genealogy that make Jesus look good? If he was going to mention women, he could have mentioned Sarah. Sarah's a wonderful woman, but he didn't mention her. He could have mentioned Rebecca. That's a beautiful story, but he doesn't mention her. There are many other honorable women that did incredible things, but he doesn't mention them. He seems to highlight just the questionable and the ugly parts of the story. Why did he do that? Here's why I think he did it. Because Matthew spent three years with Jesus. Matthew saw Jesus die on a cross. Matthew stood beside an empty tomb. Matthew had heard Jesus teach. And Matthew knew all the shady characters with all their baggage and with all their sin and with all of their embarrassing stories. Matthew knew that they were the point of the story that he was about to tell. Matthew knew that sin was the issue that Jesus came to address. Sin was the issue. It was the whole point. It was the reason why Jesus came. Matthew knew firsthand that this really was a story about light coming into a dark, dark world. It was really a story about life coming to those who were dead. He knew that this really was a story of grace penetrating what had only been the legalistic boundaries of the law. He knew that this really was a story of forgiveness in a world that only knew condemnation up to that point. And Matthew knew that this, because he knew it so well because it was his story. This is probably why he included all of the shady characters in the story, because his story was similar. He was a shady character. Of the three gospel writers, Matthew, of the four, Matthew was the shady character. These were his people. These were the kind of people who were his friends, because he was a tax collector. He was a shady character who was transformed by Jesus. And as a matter of fact, I believe the day that Matthew met Jesus was probably the most embarrassing day of his entire life. It happened at Capernaum. Capernaum is a, is a port city along the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is it's a big lake, but it's so big, it's like 17 miles um, one way and like seven miles across. And the Jordan River flows out of the bottom of it. But it was so big that they referred to it as a sea. They referred to it as an ocean. And there were little port cities all along it. And a lot of Jesus' ministry happened in the area of Galilee, right along the Sea of Galilee. And Capernaum was one of those port cities. So one day, Jesus and his disciples got off a boat at Capernaum. And as they got off the boat, as so often happened, a crowd had heard that Jesus was coming. They find out, it's kind of like, they, they find out before, you know, ahead of time, and then they all show up there. And so this crowd shows up, and Jesus and his disciples, at, as they're, they're coming into port, they get off the boat, and this crowd rushes to Jesus, and they lay a paralyzed man at his feet, which again was pretty common, because whenever people found out that Jesus was coming, they always brought their sick. They wanted to bring out all the, the people that they loved who were hurting and make sure they got a central spot right in front of Jesus where Jesus might be able to bring healing to them. So this wasn't uncommon, but what Jesus did in this moment was different. Jesus did something unusual. He looked at the paralyzed man 
And he said to him, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. So Jesus forgives this guy's sins. And I can imagine that there's just a bit of a hush, like a pause in that moment. Like everybody's like, okay, that's good. But we brought him here so that he could walk again. <laughs> like that was our goal. Like the forgiven sins was unexpected. Our desire was to bring him to you, Jesus, so that you could heal him and so that you could make him whole again. And Jesus had a point in that moment because Jesus knew that in the crowd there were religious leaders and there were Pharisees there. And these Pharisees had followed Jesus around everywhere because they were trying to figure out who Jesus was. Because on one hand, Jesus seemed to uphold and be obedient to the law. And in the next moment, he seemed to kind of do his own thing and say there was grace that went beyond the law. And then he would do these miracles that only someone who could come from God seemingly would have the power to do these miracles. And yet he did things outside of the box of the way that they had always observed any religious custom before. So the Pharisees were completely confused and their own righteousness was threatened. Their own way of living was threatened by Jesus. So they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. In that moment, in that pause, when Jesus forgave sins, they said, you can't tell this guy his sins are forgiven because only God can forgive sins. Pause. And Jesus says, yeah, and by the way, I have been given the authority to forgive sins. Well, you can just feel the tension mounting. And the Pharisees say, well, then you're equating yourself with God and that is blasphemy. And they start to accuse him of being blasphemous. And before the Pharisees can do anything else, as the tension is rising, Jesus looks down at the paralyzed man and he says, young man, roll up your mat and take it home with you today. Get up and walk. And Jesus healed him in that moment. And everyone who was standing there, the Bible says, was amazed that God had given such authority to a mere man, the scripture says. They were amazed. Why were they amazed? They were amazed at the miracle, but more than that, they were amazed that God had given this kind of authority to a mere man. Now, we don't know if Matthew saw that. We don't know if Matthew experienced that or if he was in the vicinity of that happening. But what we do know is that when Matthew wrote his account of Jesus' life, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he made sure that his audience knew that the moment in which he met Jesus was right after Jesus looked at that paralyzed man and said, your sins are forgiven. Because just moments later, Matthew would be eye to eye, face to face with the Savior of the world, with his Savior for the very first time. And here's how it happened. In Matthew chapter 9, Verses 9 through 13, Matthew begins to write his own story, okay? This is kind of interesting to think about. So Matthew is the writer of the gospel. So, so far, we he started with the genealogy, and then he wrote the account of Jesus' birth, and then he wrote the account of Jesus' ministry, and we get to Matthew chapter 9. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, he tells this uh, account of Jesus coming off of the boat at Capernaum, and Jesus forgiving this man's sins, and then healing this man, and then immediately after that, he launches right into this in Matthew 9, verse 9 through 13. He begins to write his own story, and he says it this way. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. So I want to pause right there. This is Matthew writing about himself. Now, I'd imagine when Matthew was at a party anytime after this occurrence, 
and they played the what's your most embarrassing moment game where you have to share what your most embarrassing moment in life was, that Matthew forever always referred back to this moment. The moment that he met Jesus for the very first time, Matthew's sitting there collecting taxes when he met Jesus. Now here's why I believe this would have been Matthew's most embarrassing moment. I want you to understand this uh, more fully. So the Romans sold the privilege of tax collecting to people. Um, These people are not popular because tax collectors, because you could add a surcharge to those taxes, which meant that tax collectors would become very wealthy because they overtaxed and where they were able to keep, they were able to keep whatever surpluses they could make in that overage as long as they sent enough money back to Rome to keep Rome happy. As long as Rome was happy, they could uh, jack up the tax rates as much as they would like. And there were a lot of taxes in those days, not too different from what we experience now. Uh, But there were a lot of taxes, gate taxes, port taxes, produce taxes, any kind of tax that you could imagine when you moved from one place to the next um, in in just living life, there were taxes involved. So anytime Rome needed more money raised, they would just raise the taxes in all the areas of the world that they had conquered or dominated. And it would be the responsibilities of the tax collectors uh, who they had hired to do that, to collect those taxes. So they sold this opportunity to raise taxes for five years. You bought a five-year privilege to do this. Well, the problem was this. If you're a Roman citizen and you go to Judea to raise uh, raise taxes, how popular are you going to be as a Roman citizen doing this in Judea? Not at all. People would egg your house, they'd graffiti your donkey, stuff like that. Bad things would happen. So Rome figured this out, and the Romans got smart, and they recruited Jewish people to raise taxes on the Jewish people. So they thought, this will help solve it because it's going to be their own people. Now, if you are a Jewish person and you decided to work for Rome in this capacity, this was like the worst thing that you could possibly do. This was betraying your, your nation It was betraying your God. Uh, You were like a total outcast. So any Jewish man who who bought the opportunity to collect taxes, he was at the bottom, he was like the lowest of the low. And there were two terrible types of people mentioned in the Bible, and maybe you, you know this, but they're always mentioned together. Who are they? They're the tax collectors and sinners. And I don't even know if you ever thought about this, but they're mentioned over and over again. Tax, tax gatherers or tax collectors and sinners. Just mentioned over and over again, especially through the Gospels, that these are, are the worst people that, that there could be in that day. But the fact that they have to separate them and that tax collectors can't be lumped in with the sinners, they get their own special slot and category, really tells you a lot about how people felt about the tax collectors. They couldn't just say sinners altogether. They said tax collectors and sinners. So both of them just bottom of the, bottom of the barrel there, um, as far as that, that, the way they were seen. And there he sits at the tax collector's booth. Matthew's sitting there as Jesus walks up. I want you to, want you to get this. Jesus, there had been many prophets who had walked the land. There, there had been many rabbis who were known. But by far, Jesus couldn't even get off a boat without a huge crowd showing up. Everybody knew Jesus. This was Jesus, the picture of righteousness, Holiness personified. This was God in a bod, okay? This was a big deal. And what's Matthew doing in the moment that he comes face to face with Jesus? He's doing what he's always doing. He's cheating people. He's doing the most dishonorable profession known in his land when he meets Jesus face to face. And you can imagine what Matthew was feeling. All of those cultural implications of him being a tax collector, uh, and how that impacted his, his religious faith. All of this in one moment. Jesus makes eye contact with Matthew while he's sitting there collecting taxes, 
from other Jewish people. And Jesus and his disciples be- begin to approach Matthew. And we don't know this, but his, Jesus and his disciples were coming into a port city, and most of, the time, most of the time the tax collector would be set up near the port because when you were coming into a port or exiting a port, you had taxes to pay. And so it's very possible that that whole account of Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralyzed man and healing the paralyzed man could have happened within earshot of Matthew. His booth, his collecting area could have been right there at the port, right where Jesus got off the boat. Matthew could have been witness to all of that. But it's also likely that Jesus and his disciples had to actually pay a tax to Matthew, and that's why they were approaching him, because they were coming into a port that was not their hometown, so to speak. And so it was quite possible they'd have to be paying a tax as well. So now the disciples were aware they understood who Matthew was. They had been to Capernaum before. They knew that Matthew was the tax collector. And as the disciples approach, you could probably think they're sort of following Jesus as they're coming up on Matthew, uh, where Matthew is. They're deciding whether or not they're going to just sneer at him or spit on him. Like, it's one of the two. But like, again, lowest of the low, despised among Jewish people. But Jesus looks at Matthew right in the middle of verse 9. You can jump in there in, in the outline. And he says, follow me. Would you underline that or circle that? Jesus looks right into Matthew's eyes and he says, follow me. Jesus says, Matthew, why don't you come with me today? And the disciples are like, you have got to be kidding me. They're like, you want him to come with us. You actually want him to come along with us. Now, pastors, preachers, we like to kind of make a big deal of passages like this, this self-confession. We like to say things like, and so Matthew left his tax collecting and he followed Jesus and he never looked back. But the truth is, we don't know that that's actually what happened. We only know what scripture tells us. He had a job. Matthew had responsibilities. But apparently in some way, in that moment, Matthew turned over his responsibilities to somebody else who was helping him that day. And he got up and he followed Jesus. In that moment, Jesus said, be obedient to me. Follow me today. And Matthew obeyed. He took that next step to follow Jesus. Maybe later on, Matthew gave up tax collecting and committed his whole. I don't know how all that played out. All I know is that in that moment, he was obedient to Jesus. He got up and he followed him. So guess where they went? Matthew says, Jesus, where are we going? Jesus says, well, let's go to your house. And Peter and the guys were probably thinking, there's no way we're going into his house. There, there's no way. Just talking to him is embarrassing enough. Come on, Jesus. I don't know what kind of movement you're trying to build here. I don't know what kind of momentum or impact you're trying to have on the world, but this is not helping us. <laughs> this is not getting us anywhere. And I'm sure as Matthew writes his own story and he's thinking about it in retrospect, I'm sure that he's probably smiling, remembering what Peter and the other disciples thought of him in that moment. You know, later on, he built relationship with all these guys. But at that point, he was probably laughing as he thought back on it. So Jesus says, we're going to your house. And Jesus says, and why don't you invite some of your friends and we'll all have a meal together. So Jesus and his disciples go to hang out with Matthew's friends, the tax collectors and the sinners, the only people that Matthew could have been friends with. And all of the religious people, I want you to catch this now, all of the religious people, all of the righteous people, they only knew of one thing to do. They followed Jesus everywhere. So they're following him, but they can't go to Matthew's house. There's no way. They would never go into Matthew's house. So they probably even stayed just outside of the property line because even they wouldn't even want to step onto his property. It would take them months before they could be ceremonially clean again and, and enter the temple. Because everybody knew that tax collectors and sinners had a special kind of cooties that they were just in the air and honestly just couldn't get too close. So they probably stayed back at a distance 
And the disciples, you can see it in scripture, we don't know exactly how it happened, but the disciples ended up getting flagged down by, by the religious leaders. I can just see this whole crowd of people standing just off of Matthew's property. And Jesus and the disciples, the disciples reluctantly, but Jesus and the disciples go into Matthew's house and they're with this whole crowd. They're with the worst of the worst. They're with the tax collectors and the sinners. Both terrible categories are there. Jesus and disciples aren't having a meal with them and somehow the disciples maybe get waved out and this question is asked, what, what is Jesus doing? We don't understand why he's hanging out with those people. Probably we don't understand why he's hanging out with those people. And Jesus somehow gets word, and I don't know if he comes out from the house, I don't know how it all happened, but he says this, if you skip down to verse 12, it says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. Now, We always process this from our perspective, but I want you to think about this from the perspective of Matthew and his sinner friends who were probably listening to this. Don't you think Matthew and his friends, Jesus risked offending them in that moment? And he was saying, like, it's not you guys who need the doctor, it's these sick people here. Do you think they would have been offended? They weren't. Because do you know what people who are far from God know? People who are far from God, they know that they're far from God. They get it. And I want to ask you, didn't you know you were far from God when you were far from God? Like nobody needed to tell you. When you were far from God, you knew you were far from God. And maybe even some of you here this morning, no matter how religious you've been, you might feel like, I feel far from God. Nobody needs to point it out to me. And when you come into the presence of Jesus, it changes things. Sure, if I were to stand up here this morning and call you a sinner and judge you, you might have some particular words for me about what I could do with my religion or my judgment and where I could put all that. But when you walk away at the end of the day, when you'd walk away from me and you'd be on your own, you would still know I feel far from God. I don't feel close to God. You would know the truth about yourself. And Matthew knew And so did all of his friends. They had been ostracized for years because they didn't fit into the category that allowed them in their own mind or in anybody else's mind to be close to God. And Jesus continues to, and he says this to the Pharisees, I want you to go, I want you to go and learn what this means. And he quotes to the Pharisees from the Old Testament. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he speaks for himself and he says this, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, For I have not come to call the righteous, the good people, but sinners. In other words, Jesus, why did you come? Well, I haven't come for the people that think they have it all together, but I've come for the people who know that they don't. And that wasn't offensive to Matthew and his friends at all because they knew. They knew that they were sinners. And as Matthew considered and thought through his own story, he realized the story that he was about to tell, the one that would become one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus that he was about to tell, he knew that to include sinners in the genealogy wasn't an aberration. It wasn't an exception. Matthew knew that this was the point of Jesus' story. He had seen Jesus live out this mission. He had experienced it firsthand, that Jesus came for the sick, not for the healthy. And Matthew understood from his own experience, maybe better than any other gospel writer, that the story of Jesus, and more specifically, 
the story of Christmas is about God drawing near to those who had drawn away and God drawing near maybe to those who had been drawn away. It's about God leaning in toward those who had leaned away from God. And it's about God leaning in towards those who, who may, because of various circumstances in, in their life, maybe things that they weren't even responsible, maybe their own choices, but people who find themselves leaning away from God. That's the story of Christmas. Jesus came for those people. And so Matthew needed to highlight the problems in the genealogy because it was people like that, it was people like him, people who found themselves far away from God, it was those people who reflected why Jesus came in the very first place. Because what Matthew had discovered after three years with Jesus was that Jesus changed the rules. He totally changed the rules about what it meant for people to approach God. And I want you to think about this for just a minute. The reason why Matthew had been drawn away from God and the reason why uh, Matthew's, so many of his friends had been drawn away from God is the thinking um, back then was very similar to the thinking that many of us have right now. That in order to approach God, I have to approach God based on the platform of what I've done or what I've not done. And that what I've done or what I've not done gives me the ability or gives me the right to approach God. The only reason that God will take me seriously is because I've done good things or I've done my best to avoid doing bad things. And this is the platform in which many people back then and many people today still believe they have the right to approach God. And Matthew knew if that was the only platform to approach God, he didn't have a chance. <laughs> that he was going to be distanced from God forever. He knew that. But Jesus changed the rules. Jesus totally changed things because what Matthew had discovered by following Jesus for three years is that there are new rules and that from now on, a tax collector, a sinner like Matthew, had the opportunity to approach God not on the basis of what he had done, but on the basis of what Jesus had done for him. This was very clear to Matthew because God had not come for those who thought that they had a standing with God because of their own, of their own righteousness, but God had come for those who knew they needed a different standing altogether. Not for those who knew that they would do well, but for those who knew that they had done so poorly that they knew they needed a gift. They knew they needed the gift of righteousness, the gift of grace in their life, the gift based on what God through Christ has done on their behalf. Now, I want to ask you this morning, which stool are you sitting on this morning or which stool are you leaning on? And if you've gone to church a lot in your life, maybe in your mind, you know this one is the truth. Maybe if you've gone to church and you, you know in your head it's because of what Jesus did. But if you had to be really, really honest, you would say that oftentimes in your practical experience, the way that you think and the way that you pray and the way that you operate lands you squarely on this stool. And you know that you still bank an awful lot on trying to do the right things or not do the wrong things in order to find acceptance with God. And that somehow you've gotten so confused even though you understand grace and you believe in grace, you've been so confused that you keep coming back to this place and thinking that it's somehow in this place that you can find uh, standing and approach God in some way. Some of you have felt so far from God, you feel a lot like Matthew did. And you know you've always been over here. And God has an amazing gift he wants to offer you this Christmas season. Most people figure 
either I'm good enough or I'll never be good enough because of what I've done in my life. Jesus was saying that now you can approach God not based on what you've done, but what, on what I have done for you. Jesus provided a gift of righteousness, a gift of grace that says it's not about what, what you've done or what you will do. It's about who I am. And it's about what I will do on your behalf. And I got to tell you, I think as Matthew wrote each of those seedy characters into the genealogy, can you, I just want you to picture this for a minute. Matthew's writing this. He's a sharp guy. I mean, he's a smart guy. You don't read through the book of Matthew and, and even, uh, I know God uh, inspired the scripture that was written, but Matthew was a sharp guy. And so as I think about him writing this, this gospel out, I think about him laughing. He started with a smile and then maybe he was just belly laughing as he thought, well, I got to mention Tamar. I got to stick her in there. And then after that, he, he probably thought, I got to talk about Bathsheba. And I'll tell you what, I won't even say her name. I'll just mention that, you know, she was someone else's wife. I'm going to stir the pot and I'm going to have fun with this because he got it. Because this is the point of the story I'm about to tell. This is the point of the story of Christmas. It's not all cleaned up. It's not neat. It's about messy people. It's about sin and a savior. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to talk about these shady stories. We're going to talk about Judah and Tamar and stories that you may know or you may not know from scripture. But our hope is that you're going to be surprised by Christmas because God sent a Savior to rescue us, to rescue each of us from our sin. And that's the point of Christmas. God sent a Savior. A Savior from what? A Savior from our sin because we all desperately need that. So this is the irony. The genealogy turns out to be the perfect launch to the story of Christmas because it highlights the world's need of a Savior. The very thing that maybe confused us, or maybe you never had clarity on. Why does the Bible have to include this list of names in the beginning of the book of Matthew? Matthew's intent was clear. The story of Christmas is that because of Jesus, both the people who think that they're righteous and the people who know that they're not are both welcome to approach God because of what Jesus has done. And the goal of this series for all of us, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, whether you're raised Catholic or whether you're raised conservative Baptist, it doesn't matter. If you're still a person who's trying to approach God, whether it's in your mind or in your prayers or in your worldview or your perspective, based on what you've done or what you haven't done, our goal is that you would just abandon this completely. That this Christmas, uh, God would help you get that straight, not just in your mind, but in your heart as well. Because it will never be good enough and it will never lead you to a close relationship with God through Jesus. I want to be clear about that. This will never be good enough. You will always be pursuing religion if you pursue this. And it will never, ever lead you to a close relationship with Jesus. All of that is you. All of this is him. And when we pursue him and what he's done, it takes us to places that give us life, not places that lead us to condemnation. So this month, this Christmas season, as you come back to Daybreak each week, and I hope you come back as often as you can, I want you to, to encourage you to fully put your trust in the what he did stool because that's where you're going to discover what the real meaning of Christmas is. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning as we get ready to wrap up and spend a little time in worship this morning. We know that Jesus came for everyone, for those who think that they're righteous, and for those who don't. 
And some of you here this morning are so embarrassed by your past, things that you did, or maybe even things that you didn't do, but they come from the family you grew up in, and so you're ashamed, and you believe you could never approach God. You could never be close to him because of them. Maybe some of you have worked so hard to be, to make good choices, to be righteous, but you've missed out on grace through Jesus, and the self-condemnation and works have weighed so heavy on you for so long. No matter where you are here this morning, may your prayer for this month be this. Jesus, I'm not coming to you based on anything I've done. I'm coming to you solely based on the fact that you have done something for me. Jesus, we acknowledge that you have the authority from God to declare a sinner forgiven and to heal us. And I'm not going to get caught up in my doing anymore. I'm believing that you've done something for me as a sinner and you want to make me whole again. So this morning, Father, we want to say thank you. Thank you that you sent Jesus for all of us and thank you for your gift of grace that allows us to experience forgiveness and allows us to approach you and draw near to you a holy God, a loving God. Will you help us this Christmas to accept that gift, to receive it freely, to open it and to live in it? Would you help us to let go of our religious acts or to let go of our past? Would you help us to stop putting our trust in what we've done? And instead, would you help us to start trusting in what you've done? Thank you for always leaning towards us, for always reaching to us, because that is the real story of Christmas. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's not about what I've done It's not about what I bring to you, my Lord It's all about who you are And how you made me holy yours Send this out I'm alive, deep inside Forever change, cause you are always reaching for me. You're always reaching for me. By your blood, with your love, full of grace, you are always reaching for me. You're always reaching for me. Let this song be your declaration today what God did for us and what he's doing in our lives right now. You guide me with your word. I follow where your spirit's moving. And I'm at the end of me. When I'm caught up in Change cause you are a 
This month, we're going to continue to revisit this theme of what has Jesus done for us versus what do we continue to try to hang on to that we've done on our own. And I hope that Christmas takes new life for you this year as God challenges you with all the different dimensions of that. Maybe as we look into the lives of some people who haven't typically been celebrated in the Christmas story, but are right there in the beginning of the book of the Math- Matthew, setting the stage for the coming of Christ. Today, I'd like you to take your response cards out for just a moment. And today, if there's anything that you need prayer for, you can write that on there. But maybe more importantly today, if like Matthew, um, maybe today God spoke to you in some way. Maybe you locked eyes with Jesus in some unique way and you felt like God kind of drew near to me today. And like Matthew, maybe you just need to take your next step, whatever that might be. Just the next step of obedience where Jesus might be saying to you, follow me in some way. Just follow me. And if you need to write that down on your card, whatever that next step might be for you, or maybe God's asking you to dig into his word a little bit more or to approach him a little differently this Christmas than you have before, maybe you want to put yourself in a position where you can really hear the heart of God for you this Christmas. Um, Maybe you have a specific need that you need to write on there as well. Let's take these next couple moments and just respond. However, God's speaking to you today. Write it down. Take a few moments. And if you need someone to pray with you today, You can head right out to the lobby, down the hall to the left. Our prayer partners will be there. They'll listen and they'll pray with you today. Take these next few moments and respond to God, then join in and let's worship together.